0: As we have been encouraged to sing of, thy, of God's redeeming grace, I encourage you to open God's word to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, we have been on this journey uh, of working through the songs of ascents, and uh, today we are going to take a break from uh, this series of psalms. It's been a surprising series, Uh, I appreciate how many of you have shared uh, ways in which some of these songs, uh, some of the psalms that we have gone through have become a favorite uh, of yours. This uh, morning as we look at the uh, last one for this season in the life of our church, uh, I pray that the Lord would use perhaps even this one for some of us uh, to become a favorite psalm. It certainly has challenged my own heart in ways that I have been surprised. And I pray that the Lord would encourage you this morning as well. Let's start God's Word, Psalm 126. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 6. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Let's pray. Gracious Father... We thank You for the way You reveal Yourself to us in Your Word, and particularly how You reveal Yourself through the Psalms. As we look at this particular passage, I pray that You would speak to our hearts in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that this grace of Your work, the grace of Your Spirit uh, would be magnified in us. We pray this for the glory of Christ and through the presence of Your Spirit. Amen. Psalm 126, on first impression, if I were to ask you what is this psalm about, on first impression, without a doubt, most of you would probably say this song is about joy because phrases like shouts of joy, laughter, gladness are mentioned so often in the psalm. It's how the psalm starts, it's how how the psalm ends, and clearly the theme of joy is repeated often in this psalm. And we know that one of the tools of interpretation of a passage, one of the tools we can use to understand what a passage is about is a tool of repetition, what is being repeated. So we might say this psalm is about joy. But surprisingly, this psalm is not written for those who are joyful. It is written for those who are in tears and weeping. It is written for the people of God who may be tempted to give up under the burden of their frustrations, under the heavy load of long waiting and no results under the difficulties that seem to have no answer. We see this emphasis particularly in the way the psalm shifts halfway through the psalm. In verses 4 through 6, the restoration that the psalmist recalled from the past Becomes the prayer request in the present. And tears and weeping are the condition of the people to whom this psalm is written. Now, one Bible commentator uh, called this psalm, surprisingly, a psalm of lament. I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. The person who is writing the psalm is still in a state of gladness, as we see in verse 3. But he is writing the psalm as an encouragement for people who are in tears and weeping. Hence, the theme of today's message is encouragement for times of weeping. Perhaps some of us are in a season of tears and weeping. And we need to hear this psalm, particularly with this audience in mind, with you in mind. Perhaps you're not in a season of weeping and tears, but you know others who are. And this psalm may be an encouragement to you to how come alongside those who are in seasons of tears and weeping. Or this psalm can be one of those psalms that you put in your pocket for times when you will be in tears and weeping. The message of this psalm could be summarized in the following way. The God who restored in the past can do it again. So keep asking for his restoration. The God who restored in the past can do it again. So keep asking for his restoration. This is the message of the psalm. Because the God who restored in the past can do it again, keep asking. But how does this? psalm encourage us to keep asking for God's restoration in the present, in the current situation, in the future. There is a sense in which this psalm starts with the past, and we're going to look there first. The first point of this psalm is look to God's past restoration. This is the first starting point of encouragement for the present. Look to God's past restoration. And then we'll see in in the second point, count on God's ongoing work of restoration. Count on God's ongoing work of restoration. We'll look at these two points this morning from the psalm. In verses 1, 2, and 3, the first point is look to God's past restoration. Notice how the psalm begins. When the Lord restored... The fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. The psalmist starts his encouragement for times of weeping by looking not at the present but looking at the past. And sometimes the, 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 the way to deal with a moment, the current moment of frustration, of difficulty, of tears and, and weeping in the present, is to actually look not to the present, but to look at the past. To look at the past of how God has dealt with his people. And this, this first point starts us there. Look back. And there's three characteristics of God's past restoration with his people that this psalmist brings forth uh, in the first characteristic is in right in the very first wo- uh, verse it was such an amazing restoration that it seemed unreal that that's the intent of the phrase when the lord restored the fortunes of zion we were like those who dream it was a restoration that seemed beyond real it was like a dream and yet it was real because he goes on to say the second characteristic is that it brought shouts of joy to God's people this was not merely the internal joy that you just have deep down in your heart and you just sort of are it's subdued in you like sometimes baptists and presbyterians just think of inner joy. Joy. No! This is, this is loud joy. This is expressed joy. This is shouts of joy. People will hear about it. You can't keep quiet over it. It's a real thing. Look at verse 2. Then Our mouth was filled with laughter. And our tongue with shouts of joy. Oh, friends, the past restoration of God's people brought a great joy, a great display, loudly of joy. Friends, let me just ask you, when was the last time you shouted for joy? Seriously. When was the last time you shouted for joy? Perhaps you're the the quiet person who just likes to keep it more controlled. Friends, every Sunday morning when we sing in our service, we start our services usually with songs of praise. If you feel awkward to have shouts of joy, shouting, belting out because you wonder what people will think about you if you're the only one shouting. Friends, when we gather every Lord's Day, we start our services with praises. Belt it out! Shout it for joy. Don't just quietly express inner joy in a subdued way. Making sure that nobody hears you. Friends, one of the ways when we gather, even for worship, we should, it should be a distinct song of loudness. Not from the mics, not from the people who are singing up here, but from the mouths who are in the gathering, consider belting out shouts of joy every time we gather here every week to praise God. I love it when our kids do it. What about the adults? Belting it out. Shouts of joy. The author of the psalm tells us that God's past restoration was so great that they could not contain their joy. It became loud. Everybody heard it. Everybody saw it. And according to the psalm, even the nations heard about it. It had an international impact. That's a third characteristic about this past restoration that the psalmist is bringing up. Look at at the way verse 2 ends. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them even the nations, even the nations concluded that this restoration was not their own doing. This was not the, the, the result of their strategic work, of their strength. The nations got to conclude that the Lord has done great things for His people. Now, what is this restoration referring to? Uh, commentators debate, some think it's it's, a, it's some sort of calamity or uh, significant crisis in the, in the life of God's people. Uh, others think it was the exile, and this is referring to the restoration from the exile. Uh, the text is not very clear, uh, but since the nations surrounding God's people are coming to realize that the Lord has done such a great thing for, for His people, it is possible that that this is really referring about the exile and the return from the exile. Again, even if you're not clear which crisis specifically this is referring to, what is clear is that the Lord has done great things for his people. The nations get to see it. This has an international impact. And the psalmist closes his first stanza of, this, of, of the psalm by reme- repeating the message of the nations and now saying it for himself. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us. And he says, we're glad. We're gra- glad in the present for what God has done in the past for us. Now all the Old Testament references, wherever we see God working in powerful ways to rescue his people, whether it was in rescuing them from the bondage of Egypt, or whether it was to rescue them from the bondage in Babylon, or whether it was to rescue them from the calamities that that are referenced in the book of Joel, for example, every time we see these major events that have a, a a more wide, spread-out impact, they're pointing to what God would do forward in the future for God's people in the time of Christ. So if the Jewish people were able to find such extreme joy and laughter at God's past restoration, how much greater reasons do Christians have to reflect on God's past restoration from this point looking backwards, and what God has done for his people in Christ. Just consider what God has done for his people ultimately in Jesus, to bring us from death to eternal life, to send Christ to take upon himself the wrath of God against our sin, to grant us forgiveness, to bring us into his household as sons and daughters of the king and to be invited to the king's table and to be united to his son, Jesus. All of these are incredible benefits that God has done for his people. We could not have done it ourselves. God had to do it for us. If you have experienced God's salvation in the past, do you remember the joy it brought to you? Perhaps it was so long ago that you don't remember it anymore. I remember how God rescued me when I heard the gospel from a very, very young age. I think I was around the age of seven when I first understood the gospel to the best I can remember now. And from that time, the Lord has given me seasons of of particular joy when I was overwhelmed by the sense of his salvation for me in Jesus. God's restoration and work in my life was not only the, me, the, the, the time of, of saving me, but he has worked in various ways. When I was 14, the Lord restored me from a death-threatening illness. Looking back, there are moments in my life when I can see how God has worked in me And for me, to restore me, to save me, to rescue me. Do you have such moments? Can you look back at seeing how God has worked in your life? How God displayed His power to restore you? If you are a Christian, do you find your gladness? In God's past restoration of you. Christians should be able to say, the Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. If you're not a Christian, uh, this is what Christians hold dearly. That God has done great things for us. That we could have not done it on our own. We could have not pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. God had to send his son, Jesus, to do great things for us because we could have not done it ourselves. Oh, friends, no matter how great our education might be, we could not educate ourselves enough into eternal life. No matter how smart we are or desire to be, we could not be smart enough to get ourselves into God's eternal salvation no matter how much money we could make or how many accomplishments we could achieve our sins could not be resolved by our power by our wisdom the greatest thing God could do for you is to bring you to eternal life through his son Jesus Christ so if you're not a Christian, Would you call on the name of the Lord? Would you call on Jesus to save you? And he will. Call on him by faith. The Lord has done great things for us, his people. We are glad. Can you say that? One of the reasons why we encourage believers to read biographies in the summer in our summer book reading, uh, one of the readings is a biography, Evidence Not Seen, Darlene Rose, is because we come to realize that the Lord's work of restoration is not only in our individual lives as an individual, me and you, but the Lord has worked restoration in the lives of His people throughout the history of the church. And biographies, Christian biographies in particular, are a wonderful way to encourage your soul with reminders, with accounts of of how God has worked for His people in the past. And when we are reminded of the crises that God's people have gone through in the past and how the Lord has worked in their lives, our souls can be encouraged to look to the Lord with fresh courage And say, Lord, you have done great things in the past. Would you do it again? Friends, the present experience of joy that this psalm, the psalm writer closes with in his first stanza, in the first part of the psalm, does not mean that the reality of tears and weeping is somehow a foreign experience for God's people. And this is the complexity of the psalm, that while it starts on such a strong tone of joy, which is stirred up in the heart of this writer by recounting God's past experiences of restoration, while joy is a part of this author's heart in the present, this psalm is really real. And raw because in the second half of the psalm it focuses not on the experience of joy it focuses on the reality of the tears and the weeping and this psalm after recounting God's past restoration after he primes our hearts with the past of what God has done To prepare us for the central point of this psalm, and that is to help you and I, to encourage us, to ask for God to keep restoring in the present. That's what this psalm is about. This psalm, all the past restoration is like the primer you put on. You know when you have to paint a dark wall, and you want to paint it with some lighter color? Before you put the color, you got to put some serious level of priming so that it's ready for the color, for the new color. In a similar way, the first three verses prepare our hearts so that now we would be encouraged to look to the Lord with confident faith, to ask of the Lord again in the present. And that's what this psalm does in the second half. Count on God's ongoing work. restoration count on God's ongoing work of restoration the restoration the psalm speaks of is not merely a restoration of the past but an ongoing need in the lives of God's people so don't just stay focused on God's past restoration let that move you to count on God's ongoing work of restoration today and in the future look at the prayer request that starts in verse 4 restore our fortunes O lord like the streams in the Nageb. now you may wonder what are the fortunes that the psalmist is asking god to restore in the present if god has already restored in the past and has brought such amazing gladness What is there still to restore in the present? Well, consider if the psalm is referring to the return from the exile, there was indeed tremendous joy in the edict that King Cyrus gave to allow the remnant of God's people to return back uh, to their land. But if you keep reading the story of the account of what happened with the return of the exiles, and you get to the book of Ezra, and you get to the book of Nehemiah, which one of our Sunday school classes is currently going through, you are going to be refreshed that God's restoration of bringing the remnant back to the land, although it was huge, the restoration was not over. The work of restoration was an ongoing process. The challenges... The the ongoing frustrations, the new provocations, the new difficulties that Ezra and Nehemiah faced uh, will remind you that the work of God's restoration in the past, while it is true and real, is not the end of the story. The story continues, and the need for ongoing restoration is with us today as well facing the lures of sin, facing the pressures from the outside. These were issues that the people in the book of Nehemiah were going through. God's people, once they were restored back from the exile, realized that they needed God's ongoing restoration. So this is why this psalm is written, to encourage God's people to pray for God's restoration in the present. The point is that as long as we live on this side of eternity, the restoration of God's people is a process that continues to unfold. It's not over yet. As good and as big it was in the beginning or in the past, the work of restoration continues on. And the psalmist the p- is challenging us to look to God With fresh eyes in the present and ask for God to keep working. Uh, Friends, the restoration of the past does not mean that you should never ask for something like that again in the future. If anything, the restoration of the past should give us encouragement to ask God to do it again in the present and in the future. The remainder of the psalm will give us two images that help us how to ask God in the present for the present and ongoing restoration that's needed. And these two images, I pray, will lodge in our hearts so that God's people, we, would continue to press on in asking for God's restoration. The first image... Uh, of ongoing request is in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, this is a a difficult image for us who live in Austin in 2022. What were the streams uh, in the Negev that they become an illustration of the kind of restoration that this psalmist is asking God for? And then what what will this illustration teach us? You see, the Negev was the most southern part of Israel. Uh, It was the area that was transitioning from the the nation or the, the land of Israel to the desert. And in the summertime, and most often, the region of the Negev would become fully dry. All the creeks. All the little streams of water, the wadi, would dry up. It really became a desert. But in the winter months, uh, if there was not a long drought season, in the winter months, when the rains would start raining and heavy rains would fall down on the earth in that particular region, uh, the, the rain would begin filling up the streams again with water. And if it was a, a tremendous storm, uh, the, the streams would come down almost like in flashing floods. And, and those streams of water would be filled again. And the vegetation in the region of Negev would start springing up green almost within a f- matter of a few days so that the region would be again fertile for a few months while the streams of water were still flowing through this region. In other words, in the Negev, it was the area where normally throughout most of the season of the year, it was dry. But when God would send the rain, that area would begin blossoming with fertile soil and vegetation. Here's how one Bible commentator put it, In the summer, the streams of Negev fail and dry up. But in winter, after the rains, they are suddenly full of water again and transform the Negev almost from one day to the next into a blooming landscape and fertile plowland. And that is the imagery that the psalmist brings in his prayer to the Lord for restoration. Oh God, would you restore our fortunes again, like the streams in the Negev. Do it again, O Lord, in this way. Turn the wilderness again into green pastures. Oh, friends, perhaps some of us need to pray for that restoration in our lives, in our souls, in fresh ways. Perhaps you feel dried up in your spiritual life, that you have plateaued or even declined, that there seems to be no spiritual fruit, no more vitality, no more life in your soul. This psalm is for you and for your spiritual journey. Perhaps this psalm is challenging you to ask the Lord to restore your soul again, to bring seasons of greenness in the place of the dryness of your life. Perhaps this psalm is A song for you because there's a need for restoration in some particular area of your life. Relationships that are broken. Difficulties that are hard to heal from. Friendships that have been broken. Emptiness that seems to be going on. No energy. No hope. There's a distress in you and you feel like, living in a wilderness, let this psalm encourage you and ask of the Lord with boldness, would you restore our fortunes, O Lord? I was so encouraged last week when hearing Cal's testimony, even as an unbeliever at that time years ago, when he just prayed as an unbeliever and asked God for a change. And God brought it. And look, now Cal is among us, among God's people. God brought a change in Cal's life greater than he knew what to ask for at that time. Friends, perhaps this psalm is for you today. Have courage and confidence in asking God to do a fresh work of restoration. To change the wilderness into the fresh green areas like it happened in the Negev. But there's a second image that encourages us in the asking for restoration. And the second image shifts from the plains of the Negev to the farmer. Look at verses 5 and 6. And this is how this psalm ends, on this image. It's the image of the farmer who has to sow in tears. And this image has a different tone to it, a different pace for it. If the streams in the Negev would start coming, sometimes almost suddenly, after a big storm, a big rainy storm... The harvest that the farmer is praying for and waiting has a different pace. It doesn't come all of a sudden, it doesn't come in the unexpected ways. This picture challenges us to consider that the reaping time has to be waited for. The harvest is still ahead. It's not in here now. This In this picture, it's a time of sowing. The harvest is still in the future. But what this picture does tell us is when the harvest comes, the joy will also come as well. The image of the farmer is repeated twice in verse 5 and repeated again in verse 6. But in verse 6, the farmer is continuing to, to keep going, to sow even when he's weeping. In other words, the weeping does not stop the farmer from sowing. He keeps doing what he is responsible for in the present time. He is responsible for the sowing. He must keep sowing, even if it is with tears, even if it is in a season of weeping. Now, the psalmist doesn't tell us why the farmer is weeping. Is he weeping because... The labor is too difficult? Is he weeping because it seems like it's in a season of drought and he's uncertain whether or not there will be a harvest? Is he weeping because he has family issues at home? Is he weeping because the money has run out? Is he feeling the weight of the toil as a farmer and the work has gotten too difficult? So he's weeping. We don't know. We don't know why he is weeping. This psalm is not a call to ignore the weeping and the lamenting and the crying just because there's so much joy in the psalm. Quite the opposite. This psalm actually causes us to stop and consider the reality. What to do when you are in tears? What to do, what should the farmer do when he is weeping? And this psalm encourages those with tears and weeping. Keep sowing. Sow the seeds. Even when it's time to weep. The tears and the weeping will not start Stop the harvest from coming. The tears and the weeping will not be a stumbling block to the harvest. The tears and the weeping does not mean that this is it. The tears and the weeping are just a season for the here and now. And when the harvest comes and it will come, shouts of joy will once again be the experience of the farmer and that's why this phrase shouts of joy that was introduced in the first half of the psalm is repeated twice in the psalm the farmers end experience will be shouts of joy but now in the present our part is keep sowing even when it's in tears, even when it's with weeping. As one Bible teacher put it, our part is the persevering. We look to the Lord to do the restoring. Friends, this psalm is very real about the present challenges of God's people. This psalm acknowledges the distress of God's people. But this psalm gives hope a God we are calling to for restoration can and will once again work and act for his people the image of sowing and reaping in verses 4 and 5 and verses 5 and 6 really communicate the same message that verse 4 communicated but with a different nuance instead of the immediate transformation that the streams of of Negev would experience The image of the farmer points to the need to wait for the harvest. When the harvest comes, the shouts of joy will come too. Oh, friends, when God brings this restoration, joy will replace the tears and the weeping. I love the confirmation and the beautiful uh, reminder that God gives to his people at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 3 and 4, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, don't evaluate the worth of your life by the season of tears or weeping. Don't assume that it will always be this way. When God restores his people, shouts of joy are coming with it. And it will not be a mere Inner joy. It will be shouts of joy. It will be inexpressible. It would be loud. It would be visible. You cannot withhold it in. Lord, you have restored your people in the past. Do it again in the present. And grant us the patience and the endurance in seasons of sowing, in seasons of weeping that our hearts would not lose sight of the future joy that is in store for God's people. Friends, this psalm is not written for the happy ones. This psalm is written for those with tears and weeping. God's restoration in the past reminds us of the kind of God we have so that we may have confidence for the present and confidence for the future. And I want to leave you with the words of, of one Bible teacher who summarized this psalm beautifully. And his words probably are the best way I can summarize this psalm as well. Whether we think of the Exodus, the return from Babylon, or even the redemptive work of Christ, redemption is accomplished, but still needed. Joy seems to lie in the past. Tears occupy the present. If only the Lord would act now as completely and dramatically as he did then. So we pray for streams in the Negev, a sudden flash flood transforming dried up watercourses making the scorched land into a garden. But no, in God's providence, following on his mighty acts, in verses 1 and 3, the metaphor of the harvest takes over, in verses 5 and 6. There will be songs of joy, but only when the toilsome task of sowing has been done and the crop has matured, For harvest. That is where we find ourselves in God's perfect plan of things. This psalm is for us today. Because for most of us, we find ourselves more like the farmer. In verses 5 and 6. Than the winter season of the Negev. But when we are more like the farmer, take courage and pray confidently and with patience that God would keep restoring us let's pray